You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This is a sermon of Peter preaching. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost on that day. So therefore exalted. Because he's exalted, now he pours out the Holy Spirit. But we have this exalted at the right hand of God language there. And before we get into the particulars, um, oh man, all my slide is revealed at one time. I did not put in my, uh, my one, one bullet point at a time. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute. But before we get to the, the proper stages of the exaltation of Christ, I want to take a step back and say, why? Why was Christ exalted? Um, what's the, the logical necessity of this? So let me, let me just push, put it out to you all. Why was Christ exalted? And we see exalted as not just rising from the dead, but ascending into heaven, uh, seating, being seated at the right hand, coming back with glory to judge. Why is Christ exalted? I thought maybe it's enough for Christ to die and then he atones for our sins and that's good enough. Why is, what's the necessity of the exaltation or is there necessity? Victory, explain that. Victory of uh, life over death. Okay, that's right. In Christ, we have victory in, over death. Good. Victorious. Great. Okay, very good. So he can reign as our king. So he can reign as our king. Very good. Very good. He is God. Okay. Therefore, he should be Yep, he's God. Therefore, he should be exalted. Yeah, that's right. There's something special about that hypostatic union, the union of, of divine and human that would require, um, that would require even the humanity to be exalted because it's united to the Godhead. Yeah, a- absolutely. What else? Yeah. Yeah, to succeed where the first Adam failed. And first Adam was called to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. He failed, Adam in the garden. And so Christ now in his stead is the prophet, priest, and king. And that was intended for Adam to be an ongoing thing to be an ongoing king, an ongoing prophet and priest that he failed in. So now Christ rising from the dead is ongoing prophet, priest, and king uh, in, that, in that same manner. That's right. Good. Could it also be that Christ also proclaimed it is finished? So all the work that he was given to do, mm-hmm. he was completely obedient. He was right. Sit. That's right. That's right. So there's a, a completion of, of, in a sense, of the work. And so now seated at the right hand, is kind of a, a, a demonstrating that it's complete. He's atoned for the sins of his people. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Very good. Okay, good. This is really good. I, I love, love where you're going with this. And I want to dive back a little bit beyond even some of these ideas um, and, and ask some of the, these, because I think sometimes we have the sense, as I, as I said before, well, Jesus died for my sins and that's enough. Um, and we could maybe say that in a sense that might be enough. Um, but what's the underpinning? What was this, this therefore? He was humbled, therefore he was exalted. Or he humbled himself, therefore he's exalted. Why is this the case? And I'm going to say it's because of the covenant of redemption. So I want us to import a little bit of our covenant theology into this conversation. And if you remember, we talk about three major 
theological covenants. We talk about the covenant of redemption, which is a intra-Trinitarian pact, an agreement between the three persons of the Trinity to redeem a people. So this is before time began, before creation itself. This is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit agreeing to accomplish, the Son would accomplish, the Father would elect, the Spirit would apply salvation for a people. And then we come over here and we talk about the covenant of grace and the covenant of works over on this side. So these are God's relation with people, how God relates to people. The covenant of works was that covenant God made with Adam and all mankind in the garden. And Adam failed. And because he failed to do what God, God called him to do, the judgment for that was death. And so he was to die. That was the covenant curse for violating the covenant of works. But now because of the covenant of great or the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace now God enters into with his people. And that is a gracious covenant in that the covenant of works is fulfilled on our behalf so that we receive all that Christ did fulfilling the covenant of works. It's ours as if we fulfilled the covenant of works. And so it is graciously received. It's not received by any merit or anything that we do. So that was my quick brief overview. If that was new to you, that was way too fast. Um, and we can talk about that another time. Um, if, that was, uh, if that was not do, new to you, hopefully that was a, a little refresher. Uh, and that's it and not confusing. But I want to I sit in this covenant of redemption for a minute. This covenant between the members of the Godhead to accomplish salvation. Um, this is the persons of the Trinity agreeing to accomplish redemption of a people. And in this covenant of redemption, the Father elected a people and promised to exalt the son. So my, my, my key thing that I'm trying to get across here is part of the covenant of redemption is that the father has agreed to exalt the son if the son would come and die for his people and would be you know, uh, obedient and if the son would do all that he was called to do. Part of the reward of the son is not just having a people, but also being exalted. So this is part of the, the reward that now human flesh would be exalted and the spirit would then minister to the incarnate son in his work and then apply the son's work to the people. So this is all persons of the Trinity. And so my, again, my main um, point that I'm trying to make here is that the exaltation, while necessary for our salvation, as all of you said, um, it's, it, it goes back to this a covenant of redemption where the father says, son, if you do these things, then you will be exalted. And why am I saying that? Let's go to, um, let's go to this slide and I want to unpack a few passages here. The son's humiliation led to his exaltation because of the covenant of, covenant of redemption. I think we need to have this covenantal groundwork. And why do I say it's because of, well, I think scripture calls us to say this. Philippians 2, as we read earlier. And I won't read the whole thing, but it is this statement. He humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him. So the logical flow is humility, therefore exaltation. And we're missing part of that argument. Where, what, how in the world is humility therefore connected to exaltation? And the, the reason is the covenant of works. I think that's the best answer to this. Why is it hu humility, therefore exaltation? It's because of the covenant of works. The father said, should you humble yourself, be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore I will exalt you. And that's what Philippians is telling us. And then we have John 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father, the final prayer before he goes to his death, uh, before he goes to the, the Last Supper and, and all that with his disciples. He said, um, here, I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it's the son saying, look, Father, I've done everything you've called me to do. And you know, he's on, the, on the, the precipice of his own death. And so assuming I'm going to die for my people, I'm laying down my life for my sheep. Therefore, be faithful to your promise. And now, there's that logical connection again. And now, because I've done this, exalt me, get glorify me in your own presence with the same glory I enjoyed before the world existed. And then this Hebrews 12 will be the last, last one I'll make here. Um, and the, the writer saying this, calling us to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So there's a, a again, a causal connection. He knew he, there knew, he knew there was joy on the other side of the cross. And part of that joy is having a people us. Part of that joy is also the exaltation that he knew was promised to him. So he endured suffering for something that was on the other side. He knew that it was coming on the other side. And we ground that in the covenant of redemption. Maybe I'm belaboring a, a small point here, but I think it helps us connect humiliation and exaltation. This was the plan, the plan of redemption before the world, before the foundation of the world. And so this is the son accomplishing it and then the father glorifying the son. So I'll pause there before we get into this, these particular aspects. Um, comments and, and questions there. Yeah, Melissa. Uh, I was just thinking, I guess in the same way that if Adam had obeyed, he would have received the reward without obedience. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly right. That's right. Very good. Very good. So you're going back to that first Adam, second Adam paradigm that is so helpful here. That's right. Very good. All right. Well, let's, let's look um, at these elements here that are, are spoken of in the catechism, the elements of Christ's exaltation. And there's four, uh, four named here. I believe, if I, if I remember correctly. So the first one is rising again from the dead. So we ended with his humiliation and uh, he was buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. For these three days, Christ continued under the power of death. That was the final stage of his humbling of himself. And so here we come now to exaltation. And the first point of exaltation is that rising from the dead on that third day. This physical resurrection of Christ bodily on the third day. So remember, we talked about the soul of Christ not dying, but the soul of Christ going to heaven. The divinity of Christ did not die. It was the humanity, the, 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 sorry, the, the physical body of the humanity of Christ that died. And on the third day, the body and soul were reunited and he was raised from the dead by this miraculous work of the triune God. And oftentimes, I feel like we often treat the... Um, the resurrection as something of an afterthought, right? Jesus died for my sins and that's wonderful. But I think we need to do a better job in our own minds, making sure we consider the resurrection as central. Paul considered it as central to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you as a first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul says, these are the central things. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. That's the essential pieces of the gospel that we must hold dear. This is important, critically important. As we talked about, victory over death, um, vindicating, or, or, or um, um, uh, what's, what's the right word? Uh, what's that? 
Van- vanquishing, there we go, yeah, vanquishing the enemy, um, proving that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for our sins. The Father raised him from the dead, and this is now the newness of life in which we walk. There's all kinds of imagery, all kinds of reasons that it was ne- necessary and is an essential part of the gospel. Christ rising from the dead. If we had a Savior in the grave, we would have absolutely no assurance that his death was on our behalf. We would have no assurance that the Father accepts that as a pleasing sacrifice in our stead. And so the resurrection is that public statement that, yes, his sacrifice is enough. And then the life and all these other elements as well that come out of that. But also we see in the resurrection, Christ's resurrected body is a, we could say, a prototype of our resurrection bodies. Um, Not a prototype in an unfinished preliminary version, but a prototype in the first one, the first fruits. This is the first fruits of a resurrection of the dead that we will all enjoy. Uh, Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. The first man was from the earth, Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, Jesus Christ. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. So speaking of us as descendants of Adam, we're men of dust. Uh, And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the image of the man of heaven, the image of Christ, this resurrected Christ, that is the image that we will bear. It's a picture of us. And, and there's that language of first fruits uh, we see elsewhere where it's the, the very first, uh, the first fruit to, uh, to, to be ripe. And then, you know, it's the signal for the rest of the, the, the fruit to be ripe in a short amount of time. And that's what Christ is. His body, his resurrected body, is what our bodies will be like when we're resurrected and glorified. Now, let's go back a little bit. Great. Christ had a choice in, when you're going through this, in this death. Yes. And yet his father takes his cup from him. That's right. That's right. So did he have a choice? Yes. So the question is, did the son, did Christ have a choice before going to the cross? Um, and yes, I, I, he, he certainly did. And we talk about um, in this, this the theological term, the hypostatic union, the one person with two natures, uh, these, each nature has its own will. So Jesus has a divine will and a human will. And in such a way, they work together in perfect harmony. So what we'll say is the divine will certainly um, was in line with the Father. And the divine will was lay down my life for the sheep. The human will, that's exactly, it's also what it wanted. Jesus says, I lay down my life for my, my sheep. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. It was his will. It was his purpose to die for his people. He wanted that. But... Also, being man, being human, he understood the excruciating agony that was facing him. And so his human will was not saying, I don't want to do this uh, in, in an ultimate sense, but it was, this is a horrible death that I'm facing. I know this is the death that I'm called to. That's why he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He's speaking of the human will of Christ saying, I submit my human will to the divine will, and I'm doing what you have called me to do. Um, so did he have a choice? Yes, he did. And that's where the temptation of Christ in the wilderness is such an important story for us to read and to see at an important moment in time where Christ chose 
contrary to the temptation. Christ chose in the same way that Adam was tempted by the serpent who failed. Israel was tempted in the wilderness and they failed. Jesus then goes again in the wilderness and is tempted and he's the faithful one. And he did have a true choice. Now then we get to the, the question behind that is, is it possible for Jesus Christ to choose that which is evil or sinful? Is that even possible? Um, and there's different ways people can talk about this. And I, I might step in some, I, I'm probably stepping in murky waters if I go too far down that path. But we do believe in the um, impeccability of Christ, that there is a sense in which he couldn't have fallen, but at the same time, it was a real choice he was making. Uh, it wasn't like autopilot and there's no human will involved. But in the same way, we have a will. We decide uh, to open the door. We decide to do this. We decide to take this job. We decide to go to church in the morning. Jesus had a true human will that was making decisions all the way through. That's a long explanation. Is that getting at your answer? You want to push more, follow up? Okay. Yeah. Right. But did he also know that he would be uh, bearing all the sins past, mm-hmm. present, future mm-hmm. upon himself, right. and that the Shekinah glory of God would turn away from him? Did he have this? Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so in that uh, the Old Testament prophesies all of this. And so I think we can go based on the evidence even of, of just Isaiah. Uh, alone, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. So that was the picture of the suffering servant. And I I am very confident that Christ reading that understood. Because we looked at last week, he read other parts of Isaiah. Uh, He read it, or we've talked about this in the past. Um, He read other parts of Isaiah, stood up in the tabernacle, read it, and he said, today, uh, this is uh, being fulfilled in your hearing close that scroll, sit down, mic drop. Um, so he understood Isaiah was about him. And as he looked at Isaiah uh, in other parts, um, he understood it was, you know, it says, it is the will of God to crush him. Yeah, and that explains why he's take this cup. That's right, exactly, exactly. But he also understood um, the promises, say Psalm 16, um, the promises, not only that the Messiah will suffer, but that the, promise, the, uh, the, the Messiah will rise again. Um, the end of Psalm 16 says, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, written by David. Uh, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. But there's this key line that's quoted twice in the New Testament. Uh, Psalm 16, 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And twice in the New Testament it said, David understood this wasn't about him. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah to come. And so rightfully understood that verse is speaking of Christ in the grave. He's not going to see corruption. There will be resurrection. There will be newness of life. And then the last the last verse um, speaks of this presence of God, the resurrection presence of God, fullness of joy. Your right hand, there's, present, there's pleasures forevermore. Ultimately, Christ knew that was speaking of himself as well. So he knew the resurrection um, and he knew the, the death also that awaited him. And I wouldn't say that he knew that from this kind of divine knowledge seeping through into the human brain. Um, it was a combination of 
the word of God, but also special revelation from the Holy Spirit also, helping him understand his mission. We'll go to Jim, and then we'll come back. Sometimes I think we gloss over the humanity involved in the decision that Christ made to go to church. I mean, I, I look at Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain. Mm-hmm. We love our children. There, there's no way without the Lord's strength I could do something. We, we, we look at, at Hannah taking Samuel and giving Samuel to Eli. Um, the sacrifice there is tremendous. And, and sometimes I think we gloss over that. Yes, yeah. Jesus knew that he would be resurrected. But the, the going to the cross and having the Father send him to the cross, uh, it, it's, it's almost too much for us to, it is. to even contemplate. That's right. And he understood in that act, it was not just uh, one man dying, as horrible as that is. He understood that was one man dying and, and, and receiving the judgment of all of his people. So there's a special spiritual weight to the death um, that was excruciating, excruciatingly agonizing in a way we can't even comprehend. Uh, we'll go over here and then we'll come back to Mary Alice. Greg? I just think the verse you had in the previous slide, what it says, for the joy set before him. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's. That's great. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Mary Alice. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly. He was aware of every sin, everything, mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it so absolutely incredible. Yeah. That, but when you read that piece of scripture before, when he prays, that mm-hmm. little word, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That's mm-hmm. an awesome word. Mm-hmm. When you know fully and completely why you're going, what's going to happen to you. And you say, nevertheless, Father, mm-hmm. not, not my, my will, will yours. That's right. That is, that is incredible. It is. That's right. That is That's right. Thing. He knew completely what mm-hmm. he was doing. That's right. Completely, the full scope of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes that sacrifice. I mean, we could ponder that and ponder that and ponder that for ages, and we would not understand that's right. the scope of that bending of his will. Mm-hmm. That's right. This is amazing. It is. That's, that's my hope of salvation. Mm, amen. And, you know, that that's exactly right. That's right. Exactly. Amen. Amen. Very good. So he, in his humiliation, suffered all of these things. And then the joy that was set before him. Now we see the other side of that chasm. After the suffering, he begins with resurrect, rising from the dead. And that body that he rose with is the prototype. It's the example. It's what our bodies will be like once we rise again. And now there's not a whole lot of data on what that means or what that, what his body was like, but we have indication from from scripture that his body, we will be like him in his new resurrection body. 
And one, one point I want to make here, um, one final point on this one, is this resurrection from the dead. This is all over the New Testament. I didn't count how many times, dozens of times in the New Testament, talking about him rising from the dead. And in English, we read that and think, okay, so he was like in the state of deadness, and then he rose from the dead. But it's really fascinating. He rose now to new life. When we go back to actually the, the, the grammar in the Greek, it's fascinating because the dead is actually a plural adjective. So he rose from the dead, and here standing, uh, this, this adjective is standing as a substantival adjective. So it's standing as the noun itself. But we could, we could augment this by saying, by getting that, to get that plural in there, he rose from among the dead ones. So it's interesting when we see he rose from the dead, it's arising from this group that is dead, these dead people. He has risen from that. He has risen from not just the fact he's dead, but the realm of the dead ones, the realm of death, all those who are dead. He rose from the dead. So it's not just talking about the state of Jesus's body in death, but it's saying he was raised up. The, the, the meaning is this, of all those who are dead, one was raised. There's a realm where people are dead. Physical bodies are dead. And, and Old Testament uh, Christian or Jews used to talk about it as the shale, right? This realm of where dead bodies are. And Jesus, of all those, rose from it. It's, it's, it. It helps, I think, beef up our understanding. Rose from the dead. Not just the state of being dead, but from the realm of lots of dead. Jesus was the one who rose. So rising again from the dead. Bodily resurrection on the third day. Um, I'm going to just jump to the next one, make sure we can hit uh, at least a piece of all of these, these, four, um, these four sections here. Uh, and the second element of his exaltation was ascending into heaven. So he rose again from the dead. He had ministry on earth for a short time. He appeared to a number of people. And then he ascended up into heaven. Let me read from Acts 1, uh, narrating this ascension. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is that description. He went into heaven. He rose into heaven. Now, what does this mean exactly what happened? Uh, one day I'll be interested to see what that replay looks like. Um, but this is a physical location change. This is the, the state, the stance of the reformed church is that this Christ rising or, or ascending into heaven, this is merely a physical location change. This is not a change in state. This is not like um, uh, his, his body being raised from the dead. This is a location change. The Lutherans will say that this, res, this ascension is more metaphorical um, where, um, it's a, where his physical body actually changed, changed states and the physical body at this point in time became invisible. So it's a changing of his physical body to an invisible physical body that now is omnipresent. It's ubiquitous, as they would say. So the physical nature in the ascension becomes ubiquitous. It can be anywhere, uh, any place at all times. But the reform said, no, Christ's body remains local. It's in one place. The physical body must be local in one place. So the ascension is Christ rising from earth into heaven, a physical location change. 
and he's going to heaven, the highest heaven, uh, or as Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 12, the third heaven. It's not just he's in the clouds, not that he's into the stars, but he's into the third heaven, the highest heaven. Now, don't ask me questions anymore about that one. Um, it's a physical location change. All right, I'm sure there's questions. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Amen. Amen. That's right. That's right. No other religion, um, you know, Joseph Smith did, was never exalted. Um, no other founder of any religion was ever exalted, risen from the dead, uh, now seated in heaven. Um, yeah, it's, it's an astounding thing, an amazing thing. Yeah, so the Lutheran view. So it comes back to their view of the supper, that Christ is physically present in the supper everywhere it's celebrated. And we say, no, he's not physically present. He's spiritually present everywhere that it's celebrated. Um, but they want to maintain the physical presence of Christ. So they have to say, well, then Christ is ubiquitous. His, his physical body is omnipresent everywhere. And then they say, well, when did that happen? Well, the ascension is probably the best bet. That's when it happened. So it's kind of a, a, to get to their view of the Lord's Supper, they have to move these pieces around too. Well, doesn't it downplay his actual humanity too? Absolutely. He does have a human body. That's right, exactly. It's like we have a human That's right. It does downplay the, the humanity of Christ, uh, absolutely. I completely agree. In, in his divinity, right? He's everywhere in his fullness. That's right. That's right. We've already got this. Mine's already blown. Right, I know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That all of the dead souls are somehow in some shared place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have an unborn baby over here and an unborn baby over there, are they somehow co-located right now in some realm where in theory mm-hmm. a line could be drawn between the two? Or right. They, you know what I'm saying? Right, I, right. I can't put it into words this yeah, yeah, it does ask all kinds of raise all kinds of interesting questions. I would say one caveat would be speaking speaking physically, so not of our souls. So our souls are not in this place. The souls of the believers immediately upon death are with with the Father in heaven. And the souls of of those um, under condemnation are in hell immediately. So we're talking about physical realm of the dead here, not not actually um, uh, our, our the level of our souls. We're speaking of physically, the realm of the dead. Um, if that makes sense. Realm of the dead bodies. I don't know. <laughs> so it's grounded in the physical. Yes, yes. That would be my, my read and my understanding of it. Yeah, we can, to it. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's very important as a matter of assurance. Right. If Christ had not spent some time right. in the ground as it were, yeah. then all of Christian history is you guys believe a lie right. because I've seen all your bodies go in the ground. Like, so yeah. Right, right. Good. What? Yes, Carrie. I was just going to say, so right now, the spirit of Christ is omnipresent. 
Okay. Physical body is one That's right. Exactly. That's right. Yes. That's right. Exactly. While he was on the cross, while his body was dead in the grave, he was upholding the world by the word of his power. Every moment. That's right. That's right. And, um, and now he is, Christ still has his body. So it's not like he ascended, he put his body aside for a time and he'll grab it on another, you know, the, the, the final return. Christ still has his physical body today with the scars and his hands and his feet and his side. And, uh, and he will return with that same body. And then the question is, where is that body right now? It's in heaven, of course. Um, and it's seated at the right hand of the Father. So, okay, yes. I'm so glad you moved on with this real quick. Yes. Okay. The scripture teaches us that God, the Father, is spirit. Yes. The spirit being. So when Jesus, in his body, is seated at the right hand of the throne, God the Almighty is not sitting somewhere on the throne. That's right. Charles will be in a few days. That's right. God the Almighty. That's right. So how could this man God yes. sit? That's right. Great. Great. So we're coming now to the session, we'll call it the session of Christ, where Christ is now seated, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And this is metaphorical. God does not, the Father does not have a right hand. Um, he doesn't have a, a physical place where he is seated. So when we say the ascension to heaven, the Lutherans would say that's a metaphorical ascension. No, we say that's a physical ascension. The seated, being seated at the right hand of God the Father is metaphorical. Now, speaking of something very true, and we don't say it's metaphorical to diminish it in any way, but to your point, what is God? God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable, blah, 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 blah. He's a spirit. means he's immaterial. He cannot be seen. He is in no single location. Um, now, he manifests himself in locations, and we will see that in New Heavens and New Earth. There's a manifestation of his presence there uh, in a covenant gracious way. But what does this mean? This is a way of speaking now that Christ has authority and power. The seating speaks of a king. Um, and if you go to, right, King Charles III is seated on his throne. The king sits and everybody else stands in the presence of the king. The seating is the place of authority and power. When Christ now is seated, he rules from his, his throne. And so that's what's being um, uh, uh, being taught here in like Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. So it's speaking here of his judgment and his rule. And then uh, the, we can also talk about his intercession here for us as our king, as our priest, continuing to intercede for us as he sits and rules and reigns. Right, so it's the only place where we see Christ standing in heaven. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of discussion and debate on why. why, why. Um, one, I'll say the seating of Christ, the session of Christ is metaphorical. So I don't know if he's literally sitting on a cloud somewhere. I don't know. Um, I don't know, but it's speaking metaphorically of this place of rule and authority. So I think the standing is the more literal sense of what he actually saw the body of Christ doing at that point in time. He was literally standing. And that probably indicates he's ready himself to intervene. That's probably what it's getting at. But I don't know for sure. And people speculate. But it seems to be a, a, a willingness and a readiness um, to, be on, to be there to defend and to intervene um, and, to over, and to guard his people.
It's the best I can do. I don't know. If... So what form was Christ in before he became He was the eternal God, invisible, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being wisdom, power, might, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then, and then it's the humanity that makes him visible, uniting that eternal godness to a, a humanity. Now he's visible in the humanity. So I can think of it like just how God the Father is. That's right. It's kind of like exactly. Spirit That's right. Then... That's right. Exactly. Very good. So do you think <clears throat> you're bringing all this good discussion? Um, so do you think it would be unbiblical to believe? Christ had a body before the incarnation. And, and I'm saying this by a couple of things. So I guess we got to be careful when we talk about that the nature of Christ today is contingent upon humanity, this rolling in the earth, right? So God is immutable. Mm -hmm. And just the idea of saying that he never had a body, and then because of creation, he had a body, mm -hmm. and now has eternally a body. Right. So then that it's it's a slippery slope because now it says a, a tone in which God has changed mm -hmm. because of what He created. Right. So that's one thing. The second thing is we have possible biblical examples in which God was actually personified. Right. In the angel of the Lord. That's right. In the Old Testament, mm -hmm. which He had about. Right. And we have. <clears throat> The thought about that God created man in his own image. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we take that, obviously, saying that, well, we are to represent God in earth, mm -hmm. but do you think it's possible that Christ may have had this human body in, in which he paralleled his creation of humans to look like? Mm -hmm. And he was then, so he always had a body, so that he never changes, and then he was an yeah, so no, I don't think we can say Christ had a body prior to the incarnation because the incarnation was a particular moment in human time in history. Um, so talk about the Old Testament and there's revelation of physical beings that um, we'd say are Christophanies. Christ is revealing himself through a physical person in the Old Testament. Absolutely correct and true, and I would agree with that. However, it's different from the incarnation because the incarnation now is a union of the divine nature with the human nature in a way that never had happened before. So he could temporarily put upon himself a, a uh, appearance of human oh, likeness. Yeah, I'll, well, I need to look into that a little bit more. Well, and, that's, that's what I was Right, so I, right. I, I, I don't know if, there's, if there are places which right. Christ did not, right. that Christ did not have Right. And then he parallels human likeness mm -hmm. in his eternal life. Yeah, um, that sounds strange to me, um, and I'll have to think about that some more. I've never thought about that. It, it just doesn't sit right, but maybe... Because for me, not... it doesn't sit right that now Christ has been modified eternally. Right, so that's... That makes it that mutable. That's right, and that has been a topic of long discussion did the incarnation change God? And historically, it's always been said no. And we can talk more about that. Um, we've got to wrap up here. And Christ is coming again, so be ready. Uh, he will come to judge the world. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we are grateful for these deep things so we can see our Savior, Jesus Christ, that eternal Son of God who has taken upon himself human nature, that he would redeem us from the curse of the law under which we stand. We adore you and praise you. How magnificent, 
marvelous and glorious you are. Bless us as we enter your presence to sing and to pray and to hear you speak to us. We look forward to this with eager anticipation. Build us up for Christ's sake. In his name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.